Welcome back, everybody, to the newest episode of Cake Bites. I'm super excited about this week's guest um, because the game that he's involved with was the first game that got me really interested in esports and got me connected to the gaming industry really at large. So Chris Hopper is the head of esports at Riot for North America. And he's been with Riot really since the LCS started. And he shares the history of it from his perspective and how the NALCS has really changed throughout the years. And he talks about the World Championship Series that is going on right now. It started on October 1st and finals are on November 3rd, um, which is the same day that I'll be taking part in the Extra Life Gaming Marathon for charity. I will be uh, gaming for 24 hours and all of the money that I raise between now and then is going to be going to the children. Miracle Network. I'll have links to the League of Legends World Championship Series schedule in the show notes on cakebites.com as well as a link to my Extra Life campaign so you can take a look. Um, yeah, I think that's it for now. So, uh, so without further ado, here is Chris Hopper. I guess to get started, um, Chris. <laughs> um, you can call me Chopper if it's easier. Chopper, do you do you have a preference? Everybody at Riot calls me Chopper. Okay. Uh, there are way too many too many Chris's born in the mid '80s, so you know it's uh, usually usually the more unique name. <laughs> Chopper, it is. Um, so Chopper, how did you get started with Riot? Um. So I actually got started with Riot by playing League of Legends. Um, <laughs> the dream. I yeah, the dream. The dream came true. Um, you know, I was I was living in New York um, after I finished my graduate degree at, at University of Virginia. I was doing some financial consulting in New York, and ironically enough, uh, my manager at that company uh, had picked up League in beta and was really uh, a avid player and didn't want to stop playing when we should be doing work. And when I was on his team, I would remind him that like, Hey, we needed to do work. And he would say like, no, 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 let's play league of legends. And so he was, <laughs> that brought me into playing league of legends as a means of diversion. So, uh, so I started playing with, with him and all of his buddies. Um, so they were all level 30 and I was level one, had never played a MOBA before. Um, and so, uh, started playing, uh, support Malphite with them just cause it was the, the tankiest thing that was free. Um, played a lot of sport Malphite go, uh, going up to 30. I mean, this was pre-season one competitive, so like there was no established meta. So we'd run like Gangplank, mm-hmm. Master Yi, Bot Lane, and it was glorious. <laughs> um, and then uh, it turned out that one of his one of his buddies who we played with um, became one of Riot's first NBA interns. And uh, he was here in uh, summer of 2012 and knew that Riot was spinning up an esports department. Um, he knew that I was starting to think about moving on from the consulting firm. Um, and so he put my name in for the, uh, for the esports team. And, you know, several conversations and interviews later, uh, I ended up, uh, you know, getting the job offer. So um, it was ironically like because of League and because of my manager that I ended up leaving the company uh, <laughs> that I had been working at and, and came to Riot and, yeah, six years later, still I'm here. And what was your boss's reaction when you left to go work for Riot? I just need to know. Oh, he was super excited. Um, <laughs> I mean he he knew that he knew that I was uh, kind of nearing the end of my time at that place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that I was, you know, uh, looking for a new opportunity and, you know, the opportunity to come and, you know, how passionate I am for gaming, how passionate I am for sports. The, the cross section of the two was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. So he, he was super excited. He, he's a, a very good buddy of mine. Um, and you know, was supportive throughout. Oh, that's amazing. And you started, when was that? November, 2012. And so that wasn't that long after Riot had announced the actual LCS, right? Yes, announced but had not planned. <laughs> okay, so so were you involved in that planning process then? Yeah, I mean, as soon as I came on board, I mean, I, I basically accepted an offer um, like the Monday after the Season 2 World Championships. Um, wow. And so I came on board um, pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, we were working on... You know, the format of the league, uh, we were working on the qualifier format, we were working on the rule set, the team agreements, uh, you know, pretty much all aspects were, were up in the air. And, um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to be able to work on a lot of that stuff. And uh, in regards to, um, like, the, the team aspect, were there already... Uh, were there already teams that were really interested in joining the LCS, or was it a, a variety of players that were put together as a result of the LCS announcement? So in, throughout 2012, there had been kind of a tournament circuit throughout North America. So you had loosely organized teams, um, you know, and you kind of had a spectrum. You had, you had very loosely organized teams where it would be like five buddies who showed up for a tournament up to, mm-hmm. you know, TSM, who at that point already had a gaming house. Um, you know, they were already on contracts, uh, you know, they all showed up in jerseys, like they, they were kind of on the more professional end of the spectrum. So they're already a, a pretty wide gamut of teams that we knew uh, would be interested in joining. And, and we were only bringing eight into the initial league. So what we did was we took three from the three teams that had auto qualified um, out of the North American regional for Worlds 2012. Um, and so those three teams joined uh, automatically. And then we jo- we had another five teams uh, that joined us through a multi-day qualifier that we ran in the end of December. Okay. And do you happen to know those teams off the top of your head? Um, I'm sure. I'm just curious. TSM was one. I want to say was Dignitas mm. and CLG. Ah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, TSM Curse and or I'd say TSM Dignitas and CLG because Curse made it through in um, the qualifier. And in that first season of the LCS, um, how, how did that run for you guys? <laughs> uh, like a whirlwind. <laughs> um, you know, it was... It was invigorating. You know, everyone felt like we were kind of on the cutting edge of something. Um, and, and so, you know, there was an incredible energy and presence to the studio. Um, you know, there's an incredible energy within the team, despite the fact that we were working, you know, ungodly hours. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of fun because everyone, you know, had to wear different hats. So, you know, while I was working on a lot of the league operations items, I was also helping to produce a lot of our web content. And so I was editing a lot of our web content because we were doing both the North American and EU broadcasts out of the Los Angeles office. So I was editing content about the EU LCS and then refing games the next day. And that, you know, it was was, um, a total whirlwind. But, you know, from the beginning of the season, we knew that we were going to the Staples Center for the season three world championships. So, you know, from the very start, we knew that we were building towards this massive end product. And so it was kind of this constant inspiration, this constant, um, you know, cause that we took on 
to keep pushing and make sure that the product was in line and make sure that you know the league was great and that we were building this excitement because there was a feeling that like we couldn't disappoint that opportunity we couldn't go to staples and not crush it and so you know it was a uh, it was a it was a long year um i think a lot of people look back on it fondly uh but also would never do it again um <laughs> but you know we learned so much about what we were doing you know we made countless mistakes uh you know and, and improved upon them over time you know we hired in a ton of what became the core of this team um so you know it was it was a mad sprint uh for 12 months but at the end of it you know it was an incredible feeling of an accomplishment and you know one of the best the, the proudest moments of my career will always be, uh, you know, hearing the, the countdown to zero for the, the start of show at Staples because, you know, it was just such a massive effort by everyone on the team to pull that off. Absolutely. And the Staples Center is one of those venues that I feel like people were uh, in disbelief um, that <laughs> that the world championships were going to be at the Staples Center and, and fill it to, to capacity. Were you involved in um, in getting the Staples Center for the world championships by any chance? So I wasn't involved in booking the venue. I was uh-huh. involved in obviously working the event to a heavy capacity. Um, and I can certainly tell you that, you know, while we were there, it was, you know, as much as we were pinching ourselves that like we're on the same stage that's, <laughs> you know, sold out for, you know, it, all sorts of different artists you know i think the venue staff were pinching themselves too going wait this is a video game tournament um (laughs) and you know the great thing about it is you know for the overwhelming majority of the venues that we've been at they've been incredibly welcoming um and so while they might not understand you know they're willing to work with us and they're willing to kind of under try and you know work through our complicated cosplay security needs and you know (laughs) understand that you know our fans are going to come in and uh you know it's a five it can be a five to six hour show sometimes so like you should probably double your concessions because we ate the air canada center out of poutine you know um <laughs> we we do things differently with events and every time we go we try and you know help brief the the venue on like here's the things that you're you've probably never seen before um and you know our fans never disappoint um but you know stable center was was great the um you know it was great working with those guys that's actually why we came back in 2016 for our world championships again um you know it's just it's such an iconic venue it means so much to us you know the la fans are obviously great and it's it's such an easy venue to travel to so um yeah it's it's always going to be kind of a a special night for the team this the 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 thing that really set league of legends apart it seems aside from um things like selling out the staples center um is riot's um baseline salary for players um you know at the support that riot has put towards their players it, was, it seems like you guys kind of jumped on that early on as well right yeah i mean you know one of the things that we wanted to make very clear when we first started the LCS in 2013 was that we wanted our players to be professional. And to us, that meant that we had to ensure that they were able to make a sufficient living off of the esports that they could afford to concentrate on that. Yeah, you know, we didn't we didn't necessarily want part-time students or, you know, people who had to have a, you know, a job on the side, be a bartender, be something else. You know, we wanted to create a lifestyle that was not only sufficient for players to concentrate on, but was also aspirational for younger players to try and build towards. Um, so, you know, that's why we instituted the, uh, the minimum salary provisions that we did from the very beginning and, and increased them over time uh, was because we want to make sure that, you know, being a professional was something that, that, 
gave you proper reward for your effort, your dedication, your talent. I, I wanted to bring that up because I feel like people see the prize pools that are available in tournaments. Even people are freaking out about um, the Fortnite $100 million prize pool, you know, which is amazing. But those prize pools are great. But if there's no long-term support for the players, um, I feel like the longevity of, of that esports avenue is severely diminished if, you, if your players can't continue to get better. Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of our thinking was we wanted to create an environment where teams were able to invest in their players, players were able to invest in getting better, and everyone was working towards the long term. You know, there's other esports that have taken different models. You look at the, you know, uh, Dota 2 and how they kind of pile everything into the international. And, you know, if you win that, you had a great year and everyone's set for that, uh, you know, but below the top four or five teams there. You know, you probably don't have any teams in Dota that are earning as much as, you know, the average team in the NALCS. So, you know, it, it just kind of depends on how you want to distribute the economics across, you know, the top, middle and bottom part of your professional ecosystem. And so um, building on, on that, that change, that structure change um, in the LCS and expanding the teams that next year um, and then even starting the championship points. Um, like it seems like you guys kind of did a, a restructure right there when you did the expansion. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how you felt that changed the structure for the better? Yeah, you, you know, we brought the extra two teams on because we had looked at uh, the competitiveness of the challenger teams, and we found that there were some pretty good teams that were sitting in in challenger and were uh, you know fighting their way up. And we just determined that there was the competitive depth to allow us to create two our teams. At that LCS level, you know, I mean, Cloud9 was a challenger team. You know, we saw these these incredible teams coming out and, you know, just putting on um, such compelling performances. So, you know, for us, it was about rewarding the competitive depth of the region and, you know, creating more teams that we felt fans would be able to engage with. Um, it allowed us to kind of create more content because uh, at the time we were in a double round robin best of one. So it allowed us to kind of create more games and, and push more games through to the players. Um, circuit points was really kind of a decision that was made uh, in an attempt to balance the perceived importance of the spring and summer split. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people pointed to the summer split and said, well, that's really kind of the only one that matters. If you win that one, you go straight to Worlds. And, like, you know, it's just such a recency thing that, you know, being being good in summer, you know, being good in spring almost doesn't matter. It's all, like whether you want to go to MSI or not, but at the time that wasn't perceived as, you know, enough to merit really going as hard as you could for the entire year. And so you'd see teams that would kind of deliberately wait to, like, ramp up their practice schedules, ramp up their, uh, you know, coaches' efforts and everything until the summer. And we wanted to see that kind of an effort year-round. So we instituted uh, circuit points or or championship points in order to create more of an incentive for finishing higher in spring, Um, you know, by offering more points towards Worlds, which is the end-all goal for pretty much every team in the league. uh, You know, we felt like we were going to be creating a proper incentive that would encourage them to to try hard throughout the year rather than just for part of it. And uh, it was around that time, too, that, it seemed like uh, you guys were holding some of your your um, qualifying events during major other events in North America, like PAX, um, and then you guys made the change to holding those events in standalone venues like Madison Square Garden. Um, was that did that have to do with the size of the events or the popularity of the events? Or um, I just feel, feel like that must have been a pretty uh, abrupt change. The, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. because uh, instead of kind of riding on the excitement, not that you needed to, uh, but of of a major event like PAX and then kind of drumming up the excitement of your own huge standalone event, it seems like quite a difference. It was absolutely a huge difference. Um, you know, I think, so we were at PAX for uh, the 2012, 2013, and 2014 summer playoffs. Um, and PAX was a great venue, you know, obviously uh, a great crowd there, people who are incredibly passionate about gaming, people who are incredibly passionate about League. Um, what we realized was a couple things. One, um, we couldn't really put on the show that we wanted to at PAX. Um, you know, for one, just being in a, a convention hall is kind of difficult to create a great <laughs> viewing experience for everybody. Um, you know, we much prefer places that are, you know, like normal venues are kind of built for acoustics, built for presentation, kind of built for visual sight lines and, and so on and so on. So the, the convention mm-hmm. hall is kind of always difficult to fit into. Um, and we also wanted to be able to fit in more people and also travel to different locations. You know, we knew that seeing a live event was an incredibly rewarding experience. And if we only limited that to the fans in Seattle, we felt like it was kind of limiting our, our appeal across the country. So, um, you know, that's where we made the decision in 2015 uh, to go to Madison Square Garden for our, our summer final, um, which was, uh, again, kind of an unbelievable moment. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually uh, was lucky enough to be the uh, the project owner for that event. And so I was I was yeah. kind of running the team there. And it was um, it was incredible. I mean, for anybody who's a sports fan. You know, Staples Center is is a an incredibly important venue, but Madison Square Garden is a a hallowed venue. You know, it's almost mythological. Um, <laughs> and so to go there and to put on the show, um, and you know, we had um, uh, I think it was Billy Joel was performing like the two nights before us, and so we're like <laughs> building our our stage and everything. And, and the cool thing about Madison Square Garden that you don't really know um, if you haven't been backstage is that the, the backstage area off the floor is massive. Um, and mm-hmm. so they could actually have his entire like rollout set, and then we were building our set next to it. And so, oh, wow. like for a couple of days there, we were kind of uh, there while his you know his band and everybody was getting ready. And then eventually, would like <laughs> they're putting on the show while we're working, and so we can just kind of faintly hear the sounds of a concert going on um, while we're kind of finishing up the event. And then you know we were on the next night, and you know it, it was uh, it was incredibly surreal. Um, you know, that was uh, one of the first times that ESPN did a live spot from our finals. Uh, you know, wow. Rick Fox, uh, came out to that event and spoke to CLG and, you know, kind of encouraged them. And then CLG won their first, uh, North American championship there. Um, so, you know, just for a variety of reasons, it was an incredibly successful event for us. And it, it kind of told us that, you know, this is something that, you know, we need to bring to different locations. We need to bring this to more people uh, because, you know, we're not going to get to do Worlds in North America every year and we're not going to get to do MSI in North America every year. And so we, we need more ways to bring live League of Legends to folks in North America. And so, you know, the success of that event, I think, galvanized us into, you know, our, our then path towards, um, you know, a whole bunch of different venues, you know, everything from Vegas to Miami to Boston to Vancouver, um, you know, to Oakland uh, just a couple just a month or two ago. Um, so, you know, bringing those live events to different regions has been uh, an awesome experience and, and getting to see those fans and, and see their excitement when we come to town is, you know, constantly invigorating. If you could compare the experience to 
let's say like running the the 2015 summer playoffs in at Madison Square Garden to um, your first LCS split event um, or even a playoff event from from the first season that you guys worked. Could you compare that at all? You know, I, I think they're yes, in the sense that I, you know, they're both moments of incredible pride. I think, mm-hmm. you know, when I think back to that first that first even broadcast that we did the very first day of the NALCS. Um, and, you know, when we came back to the office after the broadcast was done, everyone was kind of giddy and, you know, broadcast viewership numbers were way higher than we expected them to be. And, you know, we were just so excited that the show had gone well. Uh, we got an email from um, one of the, the tech managers at Riot, one of like the tech service managers at Riot uh, that said that Riot's, internet usage had quadrupled its previous peak while LCS was on because so many people were watching LCS on one monitor and working on the other. Um, and so he's like, we might have to figure out a solution to this because I can't pay for this bandwidth all the time. Um, and so, you know, coming back from that, that was, you know, that was a, a giddy experience. That was, we were just so excited. We almost didn't even know what was in front of us. Um, you know, but we just felt like it was something amazing and something worth chasing. So I kind of look at that and I think of that as, you know, uh, a younger, not more naive, but just, you know, more inexperienced um, <laughs> celebration. Madison Square Garden was was kind of a turning point where, you know, that to me was where it it really kind of started to push us towards where we are today, which I sort of think of as like esports 2.0, you know. What we had in 2013 and 2014 was great. It was still, compared to today, relatively disorganized. You know, contracts were of mixed quality. Uh, you know, there weren't a ton of lawyers or people that were kind of helpful in the ecosystem. Um, you know, in the very first season, you actually didn't even necessarily have to have a written contract with your team. So free agents were able to kind of switch teams mid-season, uh, which we locked down pretty quickly. Um, but so there were there were a lot of pieces that we didn't necessarily understand i think by the time we got to msg um in 2015 we we kind of knew what we had we knew what the product was and so being able to see it realized at that level was incredibly impressive and incredibly invigorating um and it also kind of spoke to us that we could you know safely start to think about franchising and think about mm-hmm. taking other steps towards uh you know maturity and so you know w- without that event going so well i'm not sure we would have felt as comfortable you know greenlighting franchising or you know building the studio that we did here in LA and you know i i think um, in a lot of ways, that was that was the turning point for us. You know, as much fun as you know be, starting LCS was, that was the start of a train ride, and you know MSG was an inflection point. Yeah, absolutely. And I was gonna bring up the franchising next um, because that's that 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 was a really recent change. This is gonna the that that was announced in 2017, but 2018 has kind of been the the ex- the, the launch year. Right, exactly. Yep. So it's been so it's been a probably a crazy year for you um, with the with the franchising and the the shakeup and the teams that are competing in the LCS now. Um, yeah, for sure. But can you explain how the fra- how the franchising works and how it really um, the NALs or just the LCS in general? Sure. So basically, from the start of the league in 2013 until the end of the year last year, we had a system in place called promotion relegation, and what that meant was. Uh, at the end of the year, the bottom 
X number of teams. For a while, it was three. It eventually dropped to two. Uh, so the bottom three or two teams would essentially have to play to regain their spot in the NALCS against top amateur teams. Um, and what that did for us was allow, you know, underperforming, uh, you know, poorly investing or just, you know, kind of like otherwise bad organizations to filter themselves out um, because they eventually would lose out in these promotion tournaments and they wouldn't be able to kind of win their way back in. Um, so for us, that was an incredibly valuable tool towards improving the quality of our ownership group. Now, franchising closed that door and franchising was what we did to say we think that we can get to the 10 right owners in the group the 10 correct partners for us who are going to be able to help us build this into a long-term success um and so what we did throughout 2017 was take applications did countless interviews um you know background checks, credit checks, all sorts of investigation um, into who these applicants and applying groups were and what their intentions were, why they wanted this, why they wanted to grow. Um, And so based on those investigations, we accepted essentially about half of the old teams and about, um, you know, four or five new teams. Um, And, you know, letting go some of the the teams that had been in the league and just weren't selected for for the franchise spot was certainly difficult. Um, And we, you know, continue to appreciate their help in, in helping to build this product that we were able to then take towards the franchise direction. Um, and we made sure that those teams were well compensated on their way out for their efforts in building this. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so franchising is essentially a 10 team system with no promotion relegation where teams are, you know, in for perpetuity. Um, we have a lot of shared economic assets. So we have a, uh, you know, revenue sharing between, uh, you know, the league and the teams, um, you know, the teams have to account for a certain percentage of their revenue to go to players to ensure the players are paid a certain amount. Um, so it's really just a system that's designed to try and align the interests of all parties um, in the ecosystem, you know, whether that be Riot, whether that be teams, whether that be the players themselves. Um, we're just trying to make sure that everyone's on the same page, everyone's building towards kind of the same view of success, um, and, you know, we're all helping each other get there faster. Absolutely. One of the things that was incredibly interesting to me is um, – with the new teams that were accepted for uh, with the franchising, uh, all four of them have ties to professional sports. Um, three of which they're, they're owned by NBA teams, unless I'm I've got that mistaken. Um, no, I think that it, was how it, I it's read either it. by the NBA team or by the same ownership group. So so um, and I feel like professional sports interest in esports has been something that's been talked about. You know, for at least the last 10 years, um, especially with, like you said, ESPN uh, coming and participating in your uh, like the, the playoffs. Um, so I'm not surprised to see that they're involved. But can you talk about, you know, how those partnerships work? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, our franchise partners are. Uh, you know, included in a lot of our decision making. We bring them in, uh, you know, every month or two to talk through challenges that the league is facing. And, you know, what we tried to do with our, with the ownership group that we put together was put together a diverse ownership group that was going to be able to work through a variety of challenges together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we didn't want all NBA teams, but we also didn't want no NBA teams because we felt like there was some knowledge to be gleaned from people who were involved in the NBA. Um, you know, mm-hmm. similarly, we wanted people from tech and people from, you know, entertainment, people from a variety of different fields, uh, because we just felt like it was going to help us uh, improve the way that we approach our business. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, having those um, having those MBA owners in place has been great because they've been incredibly informative, incredibly supportive, um, and they're going to help us, you know, grow our grow our business and develop our players. You know, seeing the Houston Rockets and the Golden State Warriors and the the Cavs, those are those are just such big names, and for them to have such a vested interest um, in the longevity of you know the LCS itself is you know is amazing to me. Uh, in 2018, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, the average demographic of an esports fan is is considerably younger than an NBA fan. So, you know, part <laughs> of it's about diversifying your business interests. I think. Absolutely. Um, and so, how has the franchising affected um, this season that you guys are neck deep in? Because Worlds is, you know, <laughs> Worlds actually going on right um, now. <laughs> right literally right yeah. now um so so can you talk about how that's um affected this season and and the, what you guys have taken away and are looking forward to um with worlds wrapping up yeah you know i think it was interesting because you saw teams that were able to take more risks um i think before you know the thing that every team wanted to avoid uh at the utmost was uh promotion relegation and so they would make short like sort of short-sighted or or you know short-targeted decisions just to avoid promotion relegation and so you'd see top teams lending out their their best player you'd see bottom teams you know mortgaging the house to kind of pay for a player to just try and sneak into seventh place or sneak into eighth place whatever was needed to avoid those matches um and with franchising they don't have to worry about that anymore because even if you finish last you're still here next year so it allowed teams a lot more freedom to experiment with their lineups to really try and find the most competitive lineup um because at the day they're still incentivized to win so they're still trying to win but they have a little bit more freedom to try and figure out the right way to do it. Um, so I see that's probably been the biggest part, you know, outside of that, we've had a ton more contact between Riot and the owners than we did before, which I think is great. Um, you know, those guys are our partners and we all need to be on the same page with the direction that the business is going. And so without, you know, regular meeting with that group, um, you know, I think it would be a lot harder to ensure that we were, we had kind of a consensus direction to take the league in. And um, and how has Worlds gone so far? Um, pretty limited sample size. So we had the um, we've had the we had the play-in groups concluded uh, a couple days ago, um, and so the you know I think most of the expected teams made it out of that, uh, including the the third North American team. Um, and so now we're into the kind of the main group stage with four groups of four. Um, you know we're cautiously optimistic for the na teams we'll see how that goes um i think you know worlds is exciting this year because it's i think the first year that there hasn't been an overwhelming favorite um from korea uh this year i think the favorite is actually a chinese team and so we're excited to kind of see some more uh you know diversity in the um the winner's circle hopefully and you know someone can knock off korea before they get their sixth straight world championship um you know just good to have good to have some diversity um you know it's it's the most exciting time of year you know you see upsets you see big plays you see you know individual players come out of nowhere um you know if you like march madness if you like the super bowl you know there's something here for everybody that's just a sports fan so um you know it's it's a pretty special time Absolutely. And, and one thing that I've noticed as the years have gone on, and I, I'm sure this depends on where you live, um, but 
there are viewing parties for worlds all over the place. Yep. At bars, uh, if you go to call, if you're in college or live near a college town, chances are it'll be on somewhere. Um, have some, some group will be holding a host a, a viewing party. Um, and for the future, um, is are there any changes that you guys are expecting f- f- past? You know, for the next season, I'm not sure if you guys have looked past worlds quite yet, um, <laughs> uh, especially with the big changes that you guys made just this season. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure we'll have any kind of major, major changes going into 2019. Um, you know, I think a lot of a lot of this year was about sort of securing the teams, getting that first year in place. I would imagine next year is going to be a lot about uh, you know laying down the framework for some you know potential bigger bets in 2020. Um, so you know, I think there's a lot of really compelling uh, opportunity in the space. We're just you know, we're taking our time. We want to make sure that our teams are in a good spot, our fans are in a good spot. We don't want to rush too much change, uh, you know, rush too much oversaturation of the space. Um, so, you know, when we uh, when we have something to you know to share, we'll we'll definitely give you a call. But um, you know, <laughs> I just figured I'd ask. I, hey, I, I hear you. See. It's the right <laughs> instincts. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I I really appreciate your time, Chris. I know that you have been incredibly busy. Um, you I, you were traveling just I think yesterday, yep. so <laughs> and I'm sure you're off somewhere. Um, if not tomorrow, Monday. But at some point this weekend, Monday. Yep. Oh, so you get to relax a little bit. This yeah, I'm weekend. home for a weekend, which is nice. <laughs> awesome. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Um, no, just, you know, obviously, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, thank oh, uh, thanks always to our amazing fans. Um, you know, they're the reason that we do this. Um, you know, if it wasn't for them, uh, we, we wouldn't be so devilishly determined to put on a great show. So, uh, you know, for the millions <laughs> of fans that continue to support us and you know, continue to watch Worlds and, you know, scream your hearts out for, you know, all the rises and falls of every team. Um, you know, our deepest thanks. You know, we're, we really appreciate you guys and, uh, you know, hope you enjoy the rest of the world. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll have show notes for today's episode up on cakebites.com. Don't forget to like and follow the show on social media so you can keep up with updates as well as on Twitch so you can get updates when I finally go live. And yeah, I think that's everything. See y'all next time. With all the gaming sites full of editorials and fluff pieces, it can be hard to stay up to date on the news from the gaming industry. The Sometimes Geek Podcast is a quick and easy listen each week that covers the major headlines and the occasional review, with thoughts from an everyday gamer. You can find us at sometimesgeek.com or on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.